Hello and welcome back to Slatter Chatter, where October never dies. The home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloweeny. My name is Mr. Craigers, and it's so nice to see you again. <laughs> and my name is Miss Belmoy, and I hope you've all had a lovely and continue to have lovely quarantines. That's right. Um, as you may have gleaned, it has been a while. Mm-hmm. But we are back from our, what has it been, a five-month hiatus? According to Skype, the last time I talked to your old Skype account was March 29th. Okay, that sounds right. Yeah. Because I believe that's when we were recording our booze and booze. Yes, that's a lot. It was um, the Easter the Easter one. Yeah, Easter Bunny Kill Kill, which was our last episode sometime in April. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's been like five months. but It's been more than five months, right? Six months, seven six months? months, eight months. Time is meaningless. <laughs> Time is a flat circle. In COVID land, um, the Miss Mel and the Mr. Craigers of the Easter Bunny Kill Kill episode probably could never have foreseen that we would be where we are today. But that's life. Yeah. That's life. Here we are. So we're back. We're excited to be back. Um, the show is changing a little bit, not drastically, I would oh. say. Mostly in scheduling and by way of scheduling a little bit more detailed content-wise, I guess. And we're moving yeah. some of it to sort of other content forms as well. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to put it, Mel. Well, just, yeah, in terms of for where we are right now and what we're envisioning going forward, like Ms. Mill said, we're going to scale back a little bit. Um, for right now, you guys can probably expect new episodes about once a month. Um, potentially more should our own schedules allow. Um, but that being said, our episodes are probably going to be a bit more in-depth a bit more detailed, maybe even a bit longer than they've been in the past, just to um, give you guys something worth waiting for. Mm-hmm. To that end, um, October's episode, this episode, tonight we are going to be covering uh, Roger Corman's adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. And not Star- for the reasons you think. <laughs> and not for the reasons you think. If you're going, oh my gosh, I cannot listen to another horror podcast covering a plague movie or a contagion movie or a disease movie, we're going to stop you right there because the plague, Red Death, really has nothing to do with this film. It's really just a frightening device. It really has nothing to do with the original story as well, but I guess we'll get into that. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be covering tonight. Um, I would say we're both definitely looking forward to to diving deep into some Red Death. <laughs> I almost said some Red Death Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> I have this really been playing a lot of Red Dead Redemption 2, everybody, during quarantine, and we were just talking about it. <laughs> it has elements of horror in it, though. There's a serial killer um, mission... There's actually a Nosferatu uh, sort of mission that pops up at one point. So, you know, it's fitting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's fitting. It's fitting. I should have just went with it. I should have just said the joke. Ah, well. 
Um, the Mask of the Red Death Redemption. The Mask of the Red Death Redemption. Death Redemption. <laughs> um, now, so because it's been such a long time since we've done the show, um, I don't know that we're going to sit here and say, obviously, everything horror-related that we've consumed over the last several months. But if life. there's any... <laughs> life, yeah, just existing <laughs> in the world has been horror. But if there's anything that stands out to you, Miss Mel, that you want to say, if you've got like a reading or a watching or a listening recommendation that you really want people to know about, maybe we can take a moment or two for that. Yeah. Um, I assume you're all watching Blind Manor, so I'm just going to bruise right over that. Um, Read over, which was actually very recently, so I don't know how quarantine-y it was. It was in October. Um, or I guess late September, but I read Stephen Graham Jones for the first time. Loved it. Love him. Um, I actually just bought Mongrels as well to read. I read, uh, The Only Good Indians, which is his book that just came out over the summer, which is a sort of supernatural revenge, sort of like Candyman meets, um, I Know What You Did Last Summer, set to the backdrop of life as a native american in 2020 or well 2019 there's no plague in this one um so yeah that was very that was very good very exciting um and the part of the reason we're doing this episode is because i recently got very into these corman poe adaptations so that's right yeah what about you um i'm gonna give a shout out to, I'm also going to cheat. I'm not going to do something from like back in the depths of quarantine. I just watched this fun little movie on Shudder called Scare Me. Okay. About um, these two writers who um, are both going on like writing retreats. They've locked themselves away at like these wintry cabins. Respectively? What's that? Respectively? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then they they meet like when they're out running. One of them is very. That's so weird. Could you imagine being out running and meeting another writer who's right? Well, and that's kind of part of the question. Oh, interesting. Um, Because one of them is very successful horror writer. The other one um, is like more perspective, hasn't been published, and so there's this tension that comes up between the two of them. But during a power outage, they both group up in one of their cabins and agree to pass the time by trying to scare the other. Scary stories. No, no. I thought it was going to go sort of anthology style. Like as they told their stories, Mm -hmm. we would like cut away and like see the stories, but we don't. We focus on them like acting out the stories and it's a really smart, brilliant choice. Um, Both of the leads are great. Josh Rubin and Aya, cash um, have to watch this goes, yeah it goes into some unexpected direction so i recommend it um if you're looking for other sort of um writerly retreat themed spooky stories uh carmen maria machado in her uh like short story series or short story collection her body and other parties 
um, mm. which is basically a collection of like speculative horror uh, fiction has a story that she wrote um, that's like in the vein of those sort of like uh, Victorian and Edwardian pieces where they like like hyphen out names like blur out names except for like the first letter like Mr. C dash and stuff yeah. which she does with her own name and her own wife's name and stuff and I know this because like I like know her life <laughs> um, but she writes about herself at a uh, writing retreat in the Poconos uh, up in the woods and it's pretty creepy yeah that would do it yeah I feel like. so i can't remember what the story is called but it's in the collection her body and other parties so creepy shit creepy shit creepy shit all right very good very good yeah, yeah i mean obviously it's the uh it's the time for creepy shit all around it is and i stayed away from horror i think through most of like the sort of like scary depths of quarantine just because like yeah. It was one of those things like March, April through May was a lot of rewatching things. Like I rewatched Lord of the Rings, I rewatched um Avatar and Korra. Um I finished towards the beginning of quarantine, finished the rewatch of Buffy that we were doing, so Yeah, I didn't touch too much horror either. I feel like I my window it. for watching uh The Lighthouse is shrinking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what were you going to say? You didn't touch too much horror? I didn't touch too much horror. And when I did, I felt like it was very selective. Mm -hmm. And um, it had to be at the right time. Yeah. I've gotten back into it sort of as the world has situated itself in this new normal. Mm -hmm. uh, but like you said, yeah, when it was hardcore lockdown um, and everything was at a standstill, didn't really do horror at all. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, I think, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it is, you know, it is a sort of uh, comfort genre in that, like, you know, I enjoy horror things, but I think at that time, <clears throat> like, I was really into watching, like, the Halloween episodes of, like, Bob's Burgers or Family Guy or, and stuff like that as opposed to, like, fully diving into any new horror like I, I believe we were we rewatched Midsommar during Midsommar oh my god Midsommar I'm saying it like that because some like TikTok influencer had a video about it and was saying it like that and it pissed me off so much but now it's stuck in your head and now it's stuck in my head Midsommar she called it Midsommar yeah. um anyway <laughs> So rewatch that. Although that's like one of those horror things that's like not even like it's horror, but like the scares are more like just overall depressing and disturbing as opposed to like. Yeah. And I meant to watch more of Blind Manor today, but after that Eagles game, I was like so revved up that I, I could not. <laughs> uh, I'm really enjoying Blind Manor so yes. far. What episode um. are you on? I've only watched like two or three, I think. So yes. I'm still near the beginning. Yeah, I've only watched the first two. Um, I know episode three is part one, but I know that part two doesn't come until the end of. Yeah, I saw. Which that. was like that's such a like tiny little detail, but I was like, Mike Flanagan, you've done it again. <laughs> done, you gosh darn done it again. Mike. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm really liking it. I like how different it is from Hill House. Mm -hmm. While yes, still, yeah. well, I'm like, okay, I, 
it's still like this is still an anthology. I still feel that. I still yeah. feel like Flanagan. Yes. Very, yes. Like the, the cinematography that comes particularly in the scares more than anything else, I feel like is mm-hmm. quintessential Flanagan. Especially even that sort of like creature thing that keeps showing up in the uh, mirror. That's a very Flanagan esque. Uh, yeah. Cool. The, so, I've been calling it Bright Eyes. Bright Eyes. <laughs> Like the song, like like that. I mean, does it not apply? Yes, it's like creepy. I've been referring to it as like creepy Harry Potter. It does look like creepy Harry, which I also coincidentally is my nickname for Miles. (laughs) (laughs) That kid, I can't think of something. Something Ainsworth, Ellsworth. He's so good. Yeah. Major or should creep. we say, perfectly splendid. Mm. Or perfectly dreadful. It's perfectly dreadful. Yeah, so that's good stuff. But tonight we're here to talk about the Mask of Red Death. Hell yeah, we are. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be our main discussion this episode. Let's dive on in. Mm-hmm. As Roger says, um, <laughs> But first, if we're able to, let's take a listen to the trailer. Fingers his own heaven, his own hell. Let me see your face. So, 1964 is The Mask of the Red Death, adapted from Edgar Allan Poe's short story of the same name, directed by Roger Corman and starring Vincent Price. Miss Mel, when did you first see this movie? Did you 
you said you were just recently diving deep into like yes. a lot of the Corman Poe cycle films. Yes. Yeah, so, so very, very recently, like within two weeks of recording, this was the first time I had seen this. Um, because it actually started with a, well, it didn't even start with a Vincent Price deep, deep dive. I just, I had watched um, Witchfinder General or Conqueror oh. Worm, depending on which country you're in. Um, <clears throat> and I was like, oh yeah, Vincent Price, let me watch more. Then, you know, now's the time to watch some Vincent Price stuff. Um, so I was like, oh yeah, I've never seen any of like the Poe adaptations of which he stars in, you know, the majority, if not all eight. Um, and I started with this one, actually. Um, and this was like a week and a half ago. Um, <clears throat> and I was like, oh, fun. This is, this is nice. I since have watched um, Fall of the House of Usher, or I guess it's just called House of Usher um, in the movie adaptation. And then I watched uh, Ligia as well. Oh. And I had this um, epiphany while watching Ligia that if you swapped the, the sort of decades in which they existed, Vincent Price and Alan Rickman would be cast in each other's roles. Oh my god! One hundred percent. Yeah. Like I had, I was like, I was thinking about that during Ligia. I was like, what is it? And I was like, oh, it's this. It's that he is the Alan Rickman of the 40s through the 70s. Yes. And Alan Rickman is the Vincent Price of the thereafter to when he passed away. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you especially see that in Tomb of Ligia, mm -hmm. which I love that movie. Yeah. Because that character that Vincent Price plays is so like like half Hans Gruber, half Snape with a little mm -hmm. bit of like Shakespearean, you yeah. know? Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Yeah, so now think about that the next time you see a Vincent Price film. <laughs> I'm not going to be able, I'm just going to like keep imposing Alan Rickman over. Right, every yeah. Yes, yeah, so like I would have liked to have seen remakes of these films with Alan Rickman playing Vincent Price's various characters. Imagine. Yes, but when did uh, you first see this film? So I first saw this film, I believe, when I was relatively young. I have a fairly vivid memory of being at my grandparents, um, probably around this time. I feel like I remember Halloween decorations and um, the the Red Death character really standing out to me mm -hmm. in the film. I, like, I remember seeing him talk to the old woman. I kind of remember the ball scene, the mask scene. And I like, what sticks out the most is um, at the end when all of the clothes. Oh, yeah, the, the dance macabre. Yeah. No, like the end end, sorry. When oh, all oh the, yes, yes, yes. All the different color ones are leaving. Mm -hmm. um, so I saw it when I was younger and like, that's whatever watching it and like truly appreciating it, I think I want to say late high school or early college. Okay. It's also probably like revisiting them around, around the Alan time you were forced to read like all of Edgar Allan Poe for class. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember not necessarily like doing a binge or a back to back, but like within 
a relatively short period of time watching this, The Raven, Pit in the Pendulum, and Tomb of Lygia. Okay. Um, and I love them all. This one I think is my favorite. Um, because I think it's the most like artistic and visually accomplished mm -hmm. of the, of the post. I was, when I was looking at reviews of a couple of different ones, um, compared to each other, I was seeing a lot of people would compare his other Poe adaptations to this one, just in terms of like spectacle and sort of production. Yeah. I mean, this is a very decadent movie, right? Yeah. So that definitely, I think, stands out to us as viewers. Yes. So pretty great. So let's talk a little bit about where does this film come from? We've obviously mentioned that it's adapted from the Poe story of the same name, but it actually draws on another one of his um, stories known as Hop Frog. Um, yes. Would you care to tell us a little bit about that background, Ms. Mel? Sure. Um, first of all, in what grade would you say you were forced to read The Mask of Red Death? Pretty sure it was freshman year of high school. Okay. I can't remember if it was freshman year of high school for me or 11th grade because of the way we okay. did it. Um, because oh. we didn't do American like short story literature crap until um, 11th grade. So a lot of the shit in those two classes blur for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you do like a unit or did you like... We did. We did a couple of pose. It was just like, I can't remember, did we do them in ninth grade where we just like, that was like the kitchen sink English class versus like 11th grade where it was like focus decades through American like, um, yeah. you know, like I, I remember we read um, like uh, Sleepy Hollow and all that during... 11th grade, so I want to say Poe was also then, but who the fuck knows. <laughs> Point is, um, I remember the one that stuck the most with me in those classes was Lygia. And I think it's because of that poem. But, yeah, we're talking about The Mask of Red Death. So, uh, The Mask of the Red Death, which, depending oh. on uh, edition, is spelled two different ways, which I will get into in a second, but it was published in 1942, in Graham's Ladies and Gentlemen's Magazine for $12. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. Um, interestingly enough, that magazine comes up later in Poe's life because his literary rival, uh, Rufus Wilmot Griswold, I think his name is, um, like, took his position there as an editor. This is also the guy who, when Poe died, he somehow had managed to become his executor of his estate. <laughs> His rival? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're not sure how it happened, but he came into possession of all Poe's, like, outstanding, like, literary works that hadn't been published yet, and he wrote, like, a scathing obituary for him under, like, a pseudonym. That's what? just a fun side fact. <laughs> anyway, so uh, they, they published it there. It was purchased for $12, which is the equivalent of about almost $400 today. So he got paid a fair amount uh, yeah. for this. Um, it was published under two different titles. The first time it was published was um, The Mask, like a mask, M-A-S-K, of the Red Death, which emphasizes the character. Uh, a few years later, it was republished as The Mask with a Q uh, 
of the Red Death, emphasizing the sort of masquerade and party itself. So interesting way we shift sort of focus there. That is interesting. What, you said they made that change like a couple years later? Yes, they republished it under that name. And since then, I think it is only published under the, the mask yeah, as the party I've, version. I've never seen it with SK. Yes, that was originally how it was published, though. Um, but it was believed to have been inspired by uh, Poe's then wife, Virginia Eliza Clem, his, the one who is famously like a million years younger than him and his cousin. Um, she contracted tuberculosis uh, like a year or so before this, and uh, she ultimately would go on to die um, like five years after this, and then like become the inspiration for like everything after that. Like, his writings on, like, premature death and, you know, the beautiful dead girl and all that. Annabelle Lee. Exactly. Um, Hot Frog uh, is a lesser-known Poe story. I don't have as much background information on it, but it basically um, follows... Well, so Mask of Red Death follows a man named Prince Prospero, who, during a plague in his sort of, like kingdom takes all these all his friends like they say a thousand of his friends and brings them to his like abbey castle manse sequestered place and they just party for like a year and they're chill and everything's cool and then one night during a masquerade um a figure that prospero does not recognize who's in like decked out in red and wearing a red mask shows up uh, and he chases him around the palace until eventually um, he comes face to face with like the masquerader and he takes off the mask and they're like, oh, it's the Red Death. And that's where the story ends. Um, Hop Frog is a revenge story, um, though not as famous as like Cask of Amontillado. Um, but it is about a sort of court jester type character who is a dwarf. Um, whose fellow dwarf, who he's also, like, in love with, is, like, slighted by a few members of this court. So he sets up this elaborate scheme to um, exact revenge by dressing them all as, like, various types of monkeys and then just, like, lighting them on fire. A classic way to get back at something. Yes. <laughs> um... One thought I had about this, which is something we could go into, is whether or not uh, George R. R. Martin based the character of Tyrion off of Hop Frog. Mm. Just because I was seeing a lot of similarities in mannerisms and um, that sort of thing. I see that, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, both characters who are slighted undervalued and underestimated because mm -hmm. of their size in a courtly but, setting yeah in a courtly setting they yeah they still have access to this world of privilege but they're sort of they're regarded as being a fixture of it but not necessarily a part of it mm -hmm. um but you know we come to find out that you know both characters are really the most clever person in the room yes and they don't let their stature get in the way of achieving their ends they have Mm -hmm. they have ways to get what they want. Yeah. And of course, both um, with a vengeful streak. I mean, Tyrion has a lot of good qualities to him, but he also... Vengeful. 
Yeah, he's vengeful, yeah. So, yeah, just a thought I had. Um, so that's the general background. I mean, we don't need to go into Edgar Allan Poe himself. I assume you've all been, like, had Edgar Allan Poe, like, shoved down your throats. Like, you know, the rest of us in high school, you know, basically a 19th century writer who kind of, he did not invent gothic fiction um, or horror fiction or anything like that, but he definitely expanded upon it, um, had great success with it, um, and ultimately passed away via, like, being found, like, dead in a ditch in Baltimore. Very mysterious circumstances. Yes. yes. Um, but yeah, so those are the two stories um, that the movie is based on. And I wonder, I have more, like, sort of, like, on Mask than I do about Hot Frog. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, should we get into that now or wait until we sort of get into the discussion about the movie? Let's do it now. No, let's wait. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll go through the rest of the background and then we can do all of our okay. analysis maybe together. Great. So you tell us uh, what you know of the background for this movie itself. Absolutely. <laughs> so Roger Corman, um, who directed this film, was the leading filmmaker for American International Pictures, um, known as AIP. They were formerly the American Releasing Company. They were founded and headed by uh, Samuel Arkoff and James Nicholson. Uh, Corman had joined AIP in the mid-50s. It was like 1955 when they bought his racing thriller, The Fast and the Furious. Excuse me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's favorite uh, Vin Diesel, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, Crash and Burn Fest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That already existed. (laughs) Wait, so is The Fast and the Furious a remake or was this film just in development for forever? I believe The Fast and the Furious franchise as we know it is technically a remake, but really in title only. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I've seen Corman's Fast and the Furious. I can't say how similar it is. Oh and I look too deep into this. Learn something <laughs> new every day. Every day, every day. Why does nobody talk? Oh yeah. Oh my God. 1954 film, Fast and the Furious. Yep. Yep. Crime <laughs> drama B movie. See, Starring John Ireland and Dorothy Malone. Are you kidding me? All right, that's something for another day. <clears throat> that's for our other podcast, Racing Chatter. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Arkoff and Nicholson, AIP, they buy Fast and the Furious. Corman decides to stick with him because they offer him an advance to make two more films for them. And that was sort of um, the first chance he he got to like work in a setting where he wasn't working like movie to movie, paycheck to paycheck, essentially getting in advance was a big deal. So at this point in his career, he had been um, directing for just a couple or producing and writing rather for just a couple years. He was doing some Westerns, um, five guns, West Apache woman, Miss Mel is now getting very into Westerns. I am super into Westerns and various Western subgenres, as well as various motifs throughout Westerns. 
Well, Roger Corman did a good handful of Westerns, if you want to check them out. Great. Um, he also did some sci-fi, uh, The Day the World Ended, and It Conquered the World, which got him a lot of attention um, and a lot of critical praise. And he eventually started moving into what we think of as that classic uh, 1950s horror, like Attack of the Crab Monsters <laughs> and uh, The Undead. You know, classic 1950s horror. Classic 1950s horror. You know, I, big, like, animals, radiation, aliens. It's like that radiation. stuff you would see if you ever ate in the um, sci-fi drive-in theater in Hollywood Studios in Disney. Mm. And they play on the screen, like, B-horror film trailers the entire time. Yes! I imagine I've probably seen the trailer for Attack of the Crap Monsters while eating a burger there. 100%. Yeah. We didn't go there when I when we were there together. We no, we didn't. I don't know why we didn't. That feels like peak. You know why? Because we went to, we went to the monster one. One. That's like all the Universal monsters. Oh, yes. I think. I think also that heard. day I had to leave to go to work because wasn't that the day you guys saw Beauty and the Beast and some wild okay. shit went down? Oh, yeah, you were probably working. <laughs> yeah. So even if you had gone, I wouldn't have been there. Yeah. Yeah, so that was sort of where Corman was, um, you know, getting his feet wet. He also did um, a couple of crime movies like Swamp Women and Naked Paradise and some um, like teeny bopper rock and roll flicks. Uh, he did a movie called Carnival Rock. Uh, he did a movie called Sorority Girl that was sort of those like... Um, like, B, C-level movies that were trying to, like, cash in on the rock and roll craze mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. So he was doing a, a, a bunch of different things, but it was really his sci-fi and horror films that drew the attention of AIP and eventually um, is why they offered to uh, extend his contract for a four-film four film deal in 1958. So now he's directing, he's writing, and he's producing... He's doing these horror films for AIP, but he's also doing um, some more serious films like Machine Gun Kelly and The Crybaby Killer, which mm -hmm. was Jack Nicholson's first starring role. Creepy. Yeah. Um, so he's gotten a lot of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He's got a lot of cachet at this point, so he uses that to start his own production and distribution company, Film Group. And he sets that up with his brother. Jim. That's like what you call something when you're trying to like launder money. You're like, yeah, my, my film production company, film group. My film production company, film group. We're totally not using it to funnel money to cartels. I mean, like, look at like all those ones, like all the production companies from like, like up to the fifties had like the most boring names in the world, like the American international picture. This, like, this, this is like what Russia would call it's like fake film company of spies yeah. that are there to like create like anti-American propaganda from within. Right. I mean, he's film group late 1950s. Maybe there were spies. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, so yeah, so he established his film group. 
Um, and right at this time, like right at the founding, he does two joint films between his company and AIP, which um, are now regarded as classics and very much staples of, of horror from this era. The first was A Bucket of Blood, and the second was the original Little Shop of Horrors, uh, the non-musical version. I was going to say, it's pre... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Very much pre suddenly demon. Yeah. So those are obviously both um important films in their own right. Um again, lots of attention still on Corman. As the decade turns, AIP comes to him and they ask him to produce two black and white horror films for them. They ask him to shoot them both more or less back-to-back with 10 days to shoot each film and 100 grand uh, to produce each movie. So this limited budget and, like, this very rushed, fast-paced production schedule was becoming very common for AIP at, at this point, especially to ask of Corman. And he was getting really, really tired of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he negotiates to do one film in color with an extra five days to shoot it, so kind of like splitting the difference, I guess. So 15 days. Um, and combine the budget that they, that they offered to use all 200 grand on the one movie. And he proposes to make this movie an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. So AIP says, great, go for it. And of course, the result is House of Usher. Directed by Corman, uh, with a screenplay by Richard Matheson, the horror novelist, and starring Vincent Price. House of Usher is a huge hit, critically, commercially, makes a lot of money. AIP pretty much immediately commissions a follow-up with this new dream team that has come out of House of Usher, which is Corman directing, Matheson writing, Price starring, and a man named Daniel Haller as the art director sets and production, what have you. Um, And all of these people like ran in the same circles. They all knew each other. Holler and Corman had worked together on Machine Gun Kelly. So it was like a nice little family. So their follow-up film to House of Usher is The Pit and the Pendulum a year later. And that basically solidifies what we now know unofficially as the post cycle. Um, It was sort of like, because that, that movie did well. It was sort of like, yeah, we're just going to keep doing Poe movies until they stop doing well. Until we run out. Until Poe stops writing stories. Until <laughs> tell that Poe guy to keep writing. <laughs> so, um, after Pit and the Pendulum, Corman um, continues making some other films. He takes a bit of a break uh, to to do some other films in different genres for film group and for AIP. But of course he's also doing more Poe adaptations. He does the premature burial in 1962, uh, tales of terror the at the end of that same year and the Raven in 1963, which took on more of a comedic lighthearted, uh, take to the story. Um, he's also doing other horror at this time, other horror that, um, becomes, uh, important and well-remembered in their own right, like The Terror with Boris Karloff and X and the Man, the man with the X-Ray Eyes, 
This all eventually leads up to him making The Haunted Palace in 1963. This is the sixth entry in the Poe cycle, and it's not actually a Poe story. It shares its name with one of his poems, but it is actually an adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft novella, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Fun. I don't know why they like took a Poe title and did a different story instead of just doing a Poe story. I don't know. It's, it's, or just doing a Lovecraft story. <laughs> yeah, or just like just separately being like, okay, this is an adaptation of a Lovecraft story and not including it in the Poe cycle, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so he does the Hunt Palace. Then he, he needs another break again. So he goes over to Yugoslavia. Oh, you and, know. <laughs> you know. As you do when you need a break. <laughs> you know that thing. You get behind that eastern block. Yeah, and you're like, what's going on over here? Let's all chill. So he goes over there and he does a war film called The Secret Invasion. Um, and it does fairly well. And um, it seemed like it was an important film for him to do like personally at the time. And now he's sort of got a taste for being abroad a little bit. Um, so AIP basically works out this deal where they send him to England to do two more Poe films over there. And those films are going to be The Mask of the Red Death and The Tomb of Legia. So these would end up being the last of Corman's Poe cycle, um, the seventh and eighth entries, though AIP would essentially keep doing Poe um, they took a couple years off after Tomb of Ligeia, and then in the late 60s, they basically commissioned a second series um, that Witchfinder General is, like, technically loosely a part of, and, mm -hmm. like, all of the films that yeah, came out. Yeah, because that's another one where they used a Poe title, but it is not at all a Poe story. Um, exactly. Because yeah. in the... It was... <clears throat> in the UK, it was... Uh, distributed as the conqueror worm yeah so that film obviously is a standout i'd have to look at all of the films that are part of that second cycle of post stories but i don't think they've had nearly the impression that these eight have had on horror cinema um so corman's films really become the peak and the standard of what a poe adaptation looks like all of the films are very notable and that they not only share the same source, author, and director, and the star, with the exception of The Premature Burial, which starred uh, Ray Milland instead of Vincent Price, but all of them take place at some sort of isolated mansion, or castle, or palace, or large home, abbey. Um, there's always one extended scene where a minor character, not the Vincent Price character, is wandering around gloomy passages before encountering a shocking revelation. And they all have a hallucinogenic dream sequence that has lots of rich color and lurid lighting. And these became sort of trademarks and staples of um, Corman's filmmaking. So these kinds of films that these, that this Poe cycle is these sweeping Gothic, dark epics, um, are impossible to do unless you have a really solid, healthy budget, which is why that um, 
most of these films and other films like them from the 60s are pretty much untouched um, by future and contemporary filmmakers. Um, not a lot of them have seen remakes. Um, a couple have attempted, but when they do get remade or when they do get revisited, it's really they're just like going over the same film and like vaguely updating the themes. And wasn't there a mask remake in like the late 80s? Um, in 89. Which yeah. came out and like nobody acknowledged it and it wasn't until like nope. five years later until people started like publishing reviews on it. Yeah, it's a very, it's just like, it's a very non-entity film. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not that much that really stands out about it. And that was kind of the thing, right? Like, there weren't a lot of great results when this was, when it was attempted to go back to these films and try and do them again, because they just weren't done the same way as they were. Remake of Pit and the Pendulum as well from the 90s, that is really bad. Because it, because it tries to do that. So, Mask of the Red Death is the seventh and penultimate entry from the Corman Post Cycle. As we've said, Corman was always wanting to do Mask. He actually wanted to do it as the immediate follow-up to House of Usher, because he felt those were the two strongest Post stories, and it gave him the most to work with as a director. So he was initially interested in doing it based on a script by Charles Beaumont, but he waited for a few years, he decided to hold off because people were still talking in 1960 about Ingmar Bergman's uh, revolutionary film, The Seventh Seal, which had come out in 1957 and bears a lot of similar visual elements to Mask of the Red Death, particularly um, the costuming in regards to a cloaked figure of death. So he was like, eh, I don't want people to be like, you're just copying Bergman. So, there were a number of screenplays um, that were written over the years and offered. There were drafts by John Carter. Um, there's one by Robert Town, who was the writer of Last Woman on Earth and Tomb of Ligia. Um, the actress Barbara Morris, who worked with Corman a lot, actually also wrote a draft. Um, but none of them worked for Corman. He, he wasn't really feeling any of them. So he eventually went back to that first script by Beaumont, um, who had also by this point written the script for Corman's film, The Intruder, in 1962, as well as for The Premature Burial and The Haunted Palace. Um, Beaumont would also become very well known for writing some of The Twilight Zone's most uh, iconic episodes, including Static and Miniature. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so Corman was really jazzed about um, Beaumont's script, particularly the sort of twist of having Prince Prospero be a very open and avowed Satanist. So I'm going to have a, a, a theory on that later. I can't wait. Yeah. Do you want... No. No, because it, it ties in more to other things. So finish the background right. stuff and I'll, I'll, I'll loop it in. Ooh, I can't wait. Um, yeah, so he loved that idea, but he thought that there needed to be a bit more padding in the scripts um, so that they would be able to make a feature-length film, because um, the the original story is pretty short. It's only about two pages in my, um, like, Poe anthology yeah. edition. Yeah, so you need, a, you need a bit more there, even by, like, adding details to, to make it a film. Mm -hmm. um, but Beaumont wasn't available to do rewrites because he was um, really sick at this time. He had 
essentially a very mysterious and strange brain disease. Mm -hmm. Um, They think it was related to Alzheimer's, but they're not sure. Um, And he would eventually pass from that a couple years later. Um, So he wasn't able to come to England to do rewrites. So Corman brings in a man named R. Wright Campbell, who had written the screenplay for Machine Gun Kelly, um, Corman's film The Young Racers, and The Secret Invasion. So he brings uh, Campbell in to sort of flesh out the pages, and it's Campbell that introduces the Hop Frog subplot for Patrick McGee's character, Alfredo. Now, that brings us into the cast. Uh, Patrick McGee was a well-known stage actor and a relative newcomer to the screen at this time who had worked with Corman before. After Mask of the Red Death, he would go on to star in Marat Saad to uh, great acclaim, a number of horror films, and um, he would also have two roles in two Kubrick projects, A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon. The other actors in the cast included Paul Watson-Jones, who was a noted character actor from The Saint and the Quartermass Experiment. He plays Scarlatti, the noble who is turned away by Prospero. Um, and not allowed to enter the castle. Uh, Nigel Green from Zulu and Jason and the Argonauts as Ludovico, Francesco's father. David Weston, who was a prominent Shakespearean actor and a regular guest star on the original Doctor Who series as Gino, Francesca's lover. Robert Brown, who played M in um, five James Bond films in the 80s as the head guardsman. Uh, David Davies, Treasure Island and Tiger Bay as the village elder. Skip Martin, Vampire Circus and Son of Dracula as Hoptoad, the gesture. And veteran theater and radio actor John Westbrook, who played Treebeard in the animated Lord of the Rings from 1978. (laughs) And uh, was also in Tomb of Lygia in an uncredited appearance as the Red Death. The women in the cast included Verena Greenlaw, from the first Churchills and the Six Wives of Henry VIII as Esmeralda, Hoptoad's lover, and veteran theater actress Sarah Brackett as the old woman, she's credited as the grandmother, who first meets the Red Death in the film's prologue. And of course, the cast was led by Vincent Price as Prince Prospero, veteran horror actress and recognized scream queen Hazel Court uh, from Curse of Frankenstein, Premature Burial, and The Raven as Juliana, Prospero's mistress, and uh, former child actress Jane Asher as Francesca. She was um, known for Deep End, and she would go on to do Alfie and Death at a Funeral. So pretty stacked, recognizable cast. Um, the film was shot over five weeks in England as part of AIP's co-production deal with uh, a British film company called Anglo Amalgamated, Um, Their partnership meant that they were able to increase their budget um, and because they were technically classified as a British film for filming over in England, even though it was an American production company that was funding it. They used sets that had been left over from the historical drama Beckett, which uh, had just won the Oscar for Best Art Direction. So pretty good sets to take over. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? uh, Steal Like an Artist? Is the the, the phrase? Oh yeah. Well, that was them. That was mm-hmm. So yeah. So as mentioned, their their partnership meant that um, 
certain changes had to be made in order to classify them as a British film. Um, but that meant that certain American crew members could not be credited for their work on the film, including Dan Haller, our production designer, actually. Oh, yeah, he did not get credited. They put in someone else's name instead. And Corman himself is not listed as a producer, even though he was filling that role. George Willoughby, I think, is credited in his place. Weird. Yeah. Although yeah. they still do shit like that all the time. Yeah, it's really weird, right? Like those, these strange, like, concessions you have to make. Yeah. It's odd. Um... The sequence involving the mask, in particular the dance macabre, after everyone has been claimed by the Red Death, is often cited as the most famous scene from the film. But Corman was actually disappointed in that scene because he felt very constricted and encumbered by the crew that he had to work with because it was a mostly English crew. And he felt that they worked too slowly compared to American crews. Classic. Yeah. So they filmed the dance over one day, but I guess they didn't, like, get to enough or do it the way he wanted to do it. You know what's interesting is, this has nothing to do with anything, but it's just American working in a British setting. Mm -hmm. um, I was re-watching a thing where um, it was... Uh, the Howard Stern show, um, and it was the lead singer of the Eagles, um, Glenn Frey, or no, it was Don Felder. Mm. Um, and he was talking about how he actually hates the take they did on Desperado because they recorded it in an English studio and he wasn't given the amount of time to like linger on certain things that he wanted because of the English producer. Yeah, so so I guess that's a thing. Yeah, like just difference in like production work ethics between yeah. them, like like the rhythm of producing. Or yeah, what? like this guy was just very much like like just didn't give him the space he needed to yeah to record it the way he wanted. Which is crazy because like clearly no one else has a problem with that. Yeah, but it's, no, it's but, interesting. You know, it's like that the artist felt that yeah, but it's not exactly how I wanted it. Yeah. You know, so something to be explored. Yeah, that is something to be explored. That's interesting. Um, yeah, and definitely Corman's experience. Um, nonetheless, that sequence is still regarded very highly, um, as is the film itself. This film was one of the very first, I don't know if it was the first, but it was one of the first to be shot in color by legendary cinematographer and future director of Don't Look Now, uh, the man who fell from to Earth and the witches, Nicholas Rogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a cinematographer. <laughs> was he credited? He is credited. Okay. <laughs> he got in there. Um, Can you imagine those negotiations where they're like, all right, listen, we got to cut you from the. Yeah, from the credits after all the work you put in. Like the different people who like made the cut and who didn't. Mm hmm. Especially sort of like. I mean, it's great that we have the internet and we know all of this now, but like all of that time when like Mask of the Red Death was really famous, but before people could like go and see, and you're like sitting there and you're like, no, I was the producer, like, yeah. <laughs> the production designer. And you're like, well, that's not what it says on my TV. <laughs> There's no other way to fact check it. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. Um, 
Yeah. So other things of note, there was a, they had filmed a sequence that involved um, Juliana Hazel Court um, lying on a stone tablet where she has visions of demons attacking her. Very similar to the dream sequence that actually happens. But this one involved the devil appearing at the end and they, it was meant to imply that they consummate their, their marriage, so to speak, like, you know, the deal that she makes. Um, Corman has said that there was no nudity involved. Hazelcourt was fully clothed, but her performance was so convincing and evocative that the censors made them cut the scene because um, they didn't like what it was implying. Um, the film is scored by David Lee. It's his most notable film score. He did a couple other films, but I haven't even heard of them, to be honest. And when the film was released on June 24th, 1964, it received pretty positive reviews from the New York Times, Variety, the Monthly Film Bulletin. Um, they called it astonishingly good, vulgar, naive, and highly amusing. Vulgar, naive, and highly amusing. What three phrases that have no way, nothing yeah. to do with each other whatsoever, not even necessarily a positive connotation. Only a film critic, right? Yeah. <laughs> Would, would put those phrases together. Um, and one reviewer saying it was unquestionably Roger Corman's best film. Uh, most of the reviews note the philosophical nature of the film and its haunting atmosphere as major positives, as well as high praise for the sets, the costumes, and Nicholas Rogue's use of color and light in his cinematography. It was not, however, as financially successful as some of the other post-cycle films. Um, and so AIP uh, president head honcho uh, Samuel Arkoff actually said he thought the film was too arty farty, <laughs> which it's well, arty farty. Like even get the uh, the insult right. He couldn't even get it right. Um, Corman took full responsibility and I guess blame for for this um, because he said that at this point he was becoming really interested in the idea of the Poe films as expression of the subconscious and ways to explore the inner darkness through film. But maybe that wasn't what, you know, his bosses wanted to see. However, he still like always maintained um, after at the time and afterwards that this was one of his favorite films. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the background on the production of mask of the red death. Um, let's, open the door to some analysis of both yes. short story and the film. Miss Mel, I know you've got some really cool points to bring up for us. Yes. So first of all, just going to breeze right past the whole plague, rich people thing. Like that's, it is what it is. Rich people attempt to avoid a plague. Plague finds them anyway. Sounds topical. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving forward. So there's this big kind of um, debate with this story um, amongst like post scholars as to, you know, how to interpret it or whether to interpret it at all. Um, you know, the fact that it is so short um, and it is kind of scant in details, you know, leads us to believe it is meant to be symbolic of something, you know, the colors and everything, like it feels very allegorical. Uh, however, you know, people often point out uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote an essay called The Heresy of Didacticism, mm. where he basically writes that um, a poet, like a great poet's only, 
they write poetry for poetry's sake, not um, for trying to find like an ultimate truth, like truth of the capital T. Um, okay. They they refer to poetry like the art of writing poetry, or he refers to the art of writing poetry and truth as water and oil. Like he thinks that there's not a point in trying to suss out a meaning for yourself, but that if you are truly writing poetry and doing it well, then like meaning and truth will find its way into it anyway, which might be like his way of like weirdly patting himself on the back, being like, I didn't mean to inject these meanings, you just found them. You know, and I think this is a good example of that being a little bit bullshit because uh, Mask of the Red Death is very much an allegory. Like there's a lot of color symbolism, you know, even the use of Prince Prospero, who is a Shakespearean character and his name even yeah. outside of, you know, the Shakespearean connotation, like all of it feels very representative of other things. Um, a lot of people have found the different colored rooms associate to different stages in like the cycle of life. Um, but people don't always fully agree on like what equates to what. So I think he definitely intended it to be an allegory, but also was kind of just like a little bit like, full of himself or very much sort of like a literary like snob about um I don't write with a purpose like purpose finds its way into my writing sure well and he had if I'm remembering correctly like he had a desire to be taken very seriously yeah which is interesting because so at this time like gothic fiction horror fiction doesn't exist in the way that we know it um it's just gothic fiction which is kind of the new sort of like genre people are interested in and it hasn't become sort of a pulpy um you know b genre yet it's still considered like you know like literature literature um so yeah like he wants to be taken seriously he considers himself you know like he writes of himself and you know writing as like poet with a capital p um so yeah obviously he's gonna say like he did not purposely write an allegory but that's clearly what he did um but you know there are two ways of looking at it you could look at it as simply like a worth of a work of gothic fiction in the same vein as like castle of otranto um and it's just a genre exercise that happens to like pull elements from his life and like things he was thinking about at the time Mm -hmm. most people take it as a study in the inevitability of death um and i think both readings can coexist um you know it's essentially a memento mori tale you know burgeoned out of like poe's interest in this you know new gothic um uh genre that's popping up so yeah i mean we've all read it it's basically you know rich people try to hide from death and illness and death and illness eventually find them anyway um But different ways I was thinking about this, um, and this is just the original story. It's not Corman's adaptation. Yeah. And this is something I was even thinking back during, like, the throes of pandemic. But the way that um, you can view this as sort of even, like, a proto-slasher film or a proto-slasher story, and then just the way that slasher films as we know them today are almost allegories for plague and pestilence. 
Um, so looking at this, you know, <clears throat> you have slashers kind of broken into the classical era, the postmodern era, and then like what we have today is the neo-slasher. Um, you know, and you could see this as a classical era slasher, which, you know, involves moralistic punishments, you know, somebody clearly transgressed in X way. So by rules of the film or the story, they get killed, even though nobody actually gets killed or slashed in the events that we see of the story, but thinking about it in that context uh, the original story. Yeah. And then the interesting thing about neo-slashers are, you know, it reflects like a post 9-11 <clears throat> fear of meaningless death, which I think has a lot of bearings even on like post stories, period. Like, yeah. you know, early death, premature, you know, the premature burial, just like this fear of like wasted life. So two things that really have nothing to do with each other, but I feel like commingle in my brain. Um, yeah. One thing I was thinking about even during the pandemic, like the throes of the pandemic, we're still in a pandemic, obviously, um, is sort of the way that you could view slasher films then almost as an allegory for a pandemic. Like you have <clears throat> this foreign entity comes in, people start getting killed by it, town imposes curfews, you know, which feel a bit like distancing measures, teenagers flaunt the rules, have parties, congregate anyway, and they all end up getting picked off and dying. Just a thought I had while we're looking at slashers, plague stories, yeah, etc. It's all together. It's all in conversation with each other. Yes. So, Corman and his adaptation of this. I was thinking a lot about, like, the... <clears throat> Satanist plot point. Yeah. You know, in a vacuum, kind of like comes out of left field, right? It does, right? Yeah. So it's like, okay, why is that? And why is that what drew you to it? Because I know that Corman was, like you said, he was holding off on adapting it. And then this kind of this reveal in the, the script that um, Prospero and his buddies are Satanists was kind of one of the big things where he's like, oh, yeah, like I love that. I want to adapt this now. Um, and it's like, okay, why? <clears throat> and I was thinking about it and like, what, okay, so what does the story say about, you know, it's this rich guy who kind of hoards his wealth and his resources and hides from the plague. That wouldn't play super well in the 1960s because essentially Prospero is, you know, he's kind of like a picture of or a representation of capitalism, of somebody who has means um, you know, at this time period, you know, the U.S. has its first, like, true moralistic rival uh, in the form of the Soviet Union, where everything is about work, work, work. You know, you labor and you give what you earn and you spread the wealth. And the U.S. is you work and you get to keep what you have and it is <clears throat> your reward to have, um, you know, these means of these goods. I feel like during quarantine, I lose my voice so easy because I'm not talking to anybody. <laughs> um, I knew. <laughs> Thinking that earlier when I like finished talking about the production, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. So I apologize, listeners. Um, so anyway, so, you know, 
when that happens, you know, there's, you know, this could be said for tons of horror films around this, and just films in general around this decade, there's a lot of response to Soviet pushes. Like, there's a lot of films about, um, you know, evil women who want to step outside the home because only Soviet women want to work um, and that sort of thing. But in the 1960s, if you have this character who's a rich man who decides to use his resources to protect himself from the plague and that's the point of his villainy, like, that's not going to play super well. Like, why would a crowd in the 1960s in the U.S., view that as evil because we have to you know this film hinges on us viewing prospero as a bad guy right um so you need something else you need the hook that 19 mid 1960s united states can agree upon is objectively evil and you know no matter what it is about this guy he is still a villain because of you know this thing and for that time period it's you know satanism which you know the church of satan isn't even established until two years after this film comes out um but the concept of satanism is already like rampant in the 60s like people are scared of it like <clears throat> mm-hmm. there's all these like desecrations not even desecrations it's like teenagers vandalizing graveyards but people see this and are like the cultists have taken the heart out of dead bodies and used it for their you know machinations um so i think that had a lot to do even in just like the the sort of like subconscious psyche of the creators of this film is just like it's very hard to cast prospero as a villain you know and you don't necessarily have to you could cast him as a tragic figure what have you but in this context where they needed him to be a villain it's hard to say yeah the rich guy who takes what he you know has inherited or is an other you know you know, other words, entitled to and uses it to his advantage during a time of, you know, great plight, you know, that doesn't play so well with the national zeitgeist of, you know, capitalism. You, you know, you, you do the American dream and your reward is wealth and riches and, and that belongs to you and you can do with it whatever the hell you want. Yeah, because you've earned it. Yeah. And, you know, you see the Satanist stuff in a lot of things. You know, I mean, like, Witchfinder General doesn't necessarily refer to Satanism, but, you know, it's all about witches being hunted down and worshipping Satan, um, which comes out not too long after this, mm-hmm. um, which is in a cycle of, like... It's interesting because Mark Gatiss puts Witchfinder General in, like, this kind of mini-cycle of folk horror, but I found it not to be really folk horror at all. I thought it was a revenge film. That was just my take. Yeah, I don't know that I would. I don't know that I would call it folk horror either. Yeah, but you I get other folk horror films. What? What'd you say? I I think there are folkloric elements. There are, and I mean, it deals with you know English countryside, which is like definitely folkloric elements. You know, obviously the stronger case there is um, the Wicker Man, which comes out in early 70s but it's the same principle you know this is like the precursor to the satanic panic like we talk about the satanic panic in the 80s but it starts here in the 60s when we're terrified of the anti-religious sentiments of the ussr of like everything that they represent which is opposite to what the u.s represents so you have to find ways to 
you know, push U.S. morals. Like, we weren't making propaganda films the same way the Soviet Union was, but I think it's evident here where, you know, Prospero's villainy can't be that he was a rich guy who refused to help other people. Right. It has to be something else. Yeah. Um, So I found that fascinating. I think that's really fascinating. Um, I'm thinking a lot about these, like, themes of faith throughout the film now, right? Mm -hmm. And religion, because there's none of the other Poe films really bring up religion at all. Um, yeah. This is the only one, as far as I know, which I think is really interesting. Um, And this idea, you know, Prospero, he's so interested in seeing if he can corrupt Francesca's faith. Like, that's far more engaging to him than spending time with Juliana, who has already embraced Satanism. Um, I'm just trying to, I'm like, what, so what does that mean? And just thinking about, like, ultimately, as much as, like, so we frame Prospero in this way where we say, okay, he is a bad guy because he is, like, an avowed open Satanist. Mm-hmm. But in the events of the story, ultimately, he's not punished for being a Satanist. He's punished because he doesn't understand the arbitrary nature of death and that death has no order or nature mm-hmm. or master. Yeah, so it, it plays into the ultimate. Um, that is one interesting point the film makes is it doesn't necessarily say outright Satanism is bad because when he's talking to like the character of the Red Death and he, you know, he mistakes him for an emissary of Satan and he's like, well, Satan rules the universe. Like, mm-hmm. and um, the Red Death character says, well, he does not rule alone. Um, yeah, great quote. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, the film doesn't ultimately say like, okay, like outright, this is what you're being punished for. Um, I also wonder now, do we think Prospero, I guess by the, because of the end of the film, we would have to say yes. But I was just thinking, like, does he actually subscribe to Satanism or does he just use it as a framework for his, like, hedonistic lifestyle? I think what I get is, like, maybe it started out as a framework for his hedonistic lifestyle, but he got super into it. Um, I think in the mythology of this film, like... Satan exists, as do, I guess, these other deities. You know, I think, um, you know, we see that in Juliana's, like, trance stream um, and the way that the Red Death speaks to Prospero about, you know, his worshipping of Satan. It's clear that it's real, like, it's real and it's effectual. Um, But I think it could also be taken as, you know, a larger metaphor for you know, people finding excuses for, you know, ungodly or hedonistic lifestyles. Um, yeah. And just the, the you know, parallel between opulence and gluttony and greed and all these things and, you know, objective evil. Oh, yeah. The, the debauchery at the court is, mm-hmm. I feel like, framed really interestingly. Yeah. Um, there's like weird pedophilic undertones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Hopfrog's lover is played by an actual child. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, Francesca is clearly also very young. Yeah. Like. So. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting how much they were able to do with, you know, like we said, the source material is very scant. You know, it is maybe two pages max. Um, and there's not a lot of detail. Like even the Red Death, we, we assume that, you know, it was based on tuberculosis, which we know Poe's wife had. And obviously because, you know, Red Death, um, as TB is one of its prominent symptoms, is obviously coughing up blood. Um, so it's heavy in symbolism, very short in, in detail. Um, so filling it in with all these just sort of like, you know, what was the cultural environment of the 1960s? Definitely. Um, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Really layered. Um, that was fantastic. Great oh, observations, Miss Bell. Thank you. <clears throat> so what would you say was your, your one good scare? Oh, yes. We are now going to move into a new segment that we call One Good Scare. Um, inspired by Sheriff Lee Brackett from Halloween. Everybody is entitled to One Good Scare. Um, what do we each feel is the most frightening moment of this film? For me, I think the most frightening moment is the end the very end when the Red Death and the other, his colored brothers. <laughs> the Rainbow Brothers. Yeah. When they assemble, you know, he's playing with the tarot cards with the little girl. They assemble and sort of give their reports about how many they've killed on the way mm -hmm. to meet each other. And then they possess down the hill. I think that is the most frightening because it's, it's the last thing we see in this story, so it lingers with you. And it's the most, like, just that note of leaving us with that existential dread. The idea that death and plague have no order, have no system, have no master. Just ending on that note, like, is philosophically frightening. Mm. So that's my one good scare. Okay. What is your one good scare from this film? So I've been thinking about this a lot because I was waffling between two scenes. And I think the scene that was most, like, just hit me the most was the dance macabre scene. Mm, because it's very creepy. It feels almost like 1960s body horror with the way that they all are like then painted red and that's signifying that, you know, the, the plague has found them and just this very creepy artistic rendering of the plague coming across, you know, this group of people one by one, you know, and they're like very emotionless in the face, like dead face, just sort of like dancing mechanically. And then, you know, and I think it, it hit because I always found the conqueror worm poem from Lygia very, um, like, that was always very creepy to me. Mm -hmm. And it almost feels like that. Like, you're watching somebody play out the motions of, of life and death. My honorable mention was the um, Juliana's, like, vision scene where she sees all these various, like, demonic entities 
um, yeah. as she's kind of like writhing on the uh, the stone tab. That's a a beautiful but very haunting scene. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Yeah. So we're now going to move into another new segment mm-hmm. that um, I have titled, we'll see if it stays this way, The View from the Closet. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we take a moment where we discuss how might we be able to view this film from a queer lens. Um, we believe all films could be viewed from a queer lens. All films most likely can be, as members of the LGBTQ community, it's our duty to find out how and why. So let's discuss a little bit of the view from the closet of Mask of the Red Death. Do you take anything queer away from this film? So I think the obvious thing, or the thing that stuck with me when I thought about it this way, is just the otherness and the hedonism and the debauchery, which for the most part is seems to be heteronormative. Like it seems like everyone's sort of pairing off male, female and that sort of thing. Yeah. But in terms of it being a masquerade, you know, everyone becomes genderless at that point and identityless in that point. And it's these genderless identityless, um, not necessarily identityless, but, you know, like these other beings that are above gender, above sort of labeling, now engaging in this sort of, you know, debauchery, this taboo behavior, um, you know, so I think it, I, it, it can hit that way sort of on a, a symbolic level, which I feel a lot of queerness in film is symbolic. Right. And yeah. especially in a film from the 60s. Mm-hmm you know, a mainstream film, we're not going to see, you know, two ladies macking out on the balcony. <laughs> we didn't even get to see it in Star Wars for all that long in 2020 or 2019. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like I had very similar thoughts. I was, you know, I thought a lot about the masks and just the idea of concealing identity and um, hidden identities Um sort of like covert gatherings where you can have the freedom mm-hmm. to yourself and let go and indulge in certain urges, um, I think could be, could be spun into a queer interpretation. Mm-hmm. There's also yeah. the rainbow guys at the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, there was a, like, there. Which at this time, the rainbow would not have been associated with homosexuality. <laughs> Not have not not yet. Yeah, it's getting close though. And they're, and they're missing a couple colors. Yeah, and there's it's white, yellow, yellow, red. Yeah, blue, purple, violet, black. Yeah, which is the meant to be the colors of um, the rooms in the original story that like the Red Death and Prospero did their little cat and mouse game through. Yeah. Because we don't, the film doesn't have every room that the short story features. It just has, what, four of them in the film? Yeah, it has, like, the yellow room. Yellow, the, purple, yeah, white and black. I think that, was there a red room, or is the black room meant to be? So the white room is, like, it's that, like, weird antechamber right before the black room. Yeah. I just remember one of them had, like, a really glaring red light, but I think it's the black room, and they put the red light in it to, like, just kind of collapse the uh 
yeah the they symbols do, yeah. into each other they do like the red light when when like the red death reveals himself and it's prospero yeah yes because he has that very um i don't know it word for word but that very good quote where he's basically like nobody knows the face of death until until their own yeah and then he takes off his mask and it's prospero's face staring back at him absolutely great great moment yes all right, so now we're going to move into our next segment, which is called Legacy, Legacy. What is a legacy? <sighs> going to talk a little bit about the impact of this film. And I've got some notes here to share. Um, I think as we've sort of hit on, Mask of the Red Death is very much regarded as one of the best poda adaptations alongside House of Usher and one of Corman's most accomplished greatest films. The visuals and the use of color and Nicholas Rogue's cinematography um, are often cited as very admirable. Um, the costumes and the rooms and the dream sequence are also remembered as being very high quality, very standout filmmaking. And there's a number of other filmmakers that um, have cited this this film and like those sequences as inspiration um, when working in their own worlds of dreamlike horror. Um, other fun sort of tie-ins and merchandising facts. Uh, at the time of the film's release, there was a companion one-shot comic book that was released. It uh, sold for 12 cents. Um, it also came out alongside the film's official novelization, which was written by Elsie Lee. Uh, and she used the screenplay to write the novelization. I... I have a feeling you could probably find it out there on eBay. I didn't. I actually... was going to say, I wonder how much it costs. Yeah, I I didn't look, so I can't say how much it costs now. But I would be curious. I bet the comic book would probably be harder to find. That's yeah. my guess. Um, the soundtrack by David Lee was available on record. It was not released on CD until 2012. Um, mm. But uh, you could find that now if you wanted to. It's also on Spotify. There are 18 tracks. It runs at 41 minutes and 27 seconds. Other um, uses and references in pop culture. Dialogue from the film can be heard in the songs And When He Falleth by the band Theater of Tragedy, the song Dope Throne by the band Electric Wizard, and the song Beneath the Mask by the doom metal band Bell Witch. They have all used dialogue from the film in their works. And as we uh, briefly mentioned earlier, Mask of the Red Death, uh, it was remade in 1989 by directors Larry Brand and Jeffrey Delman with Roger Corman as producer. It starred Adrian Paul from Highlander as Prospero and is regarded as a relatively weak film with fairly haphazard direction and lacking in the grandeur or flavor or style of the original all right. So classic remake. What? Classic remake. Yeah, classic remake, right? Usually it does not go so well. So overall, I feel like, I mean, I think this film has a pretty strong legacy. Like people who are into horror know what this film is, um, whether or not they've seen it, you know? Mm -hmm. So... We'll now move into our last segment for the main discussion, which is a new thing we're trying out, a closing question. Something fun, something game-like to round out our discussion on Mask of the Red Death. 
I've come up with this question for you, Miss Mel. I'll answer it as well. But mm -hmm. if you were invited to Prospero's Masquerade, what type of mask would you wear? A gritty mask? No! <laughs> Have you been waiting to say that this whole time? I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> oh my god, that was the perfect response. <laughs> A gritty mask. Crush yes. Oh, incredible. <laughs> incredible. I would wear. Oh, I didn't even think about my own. I would wear a dragon mask, I think. You would wear a dragon mask. It's funny because I like to imagine, like, say we made this film now, like, somebody, like, in the background, like, just imagine, like, a gritty mask. Like, every so often you caught sight of the gritty mask in, like, the top third of the the screen. Could you imagine? <laughs> but nobody acknowledged it or talked about it. No. That was, like, um, during one of the... Uh, basketball games um you know during the the nba finals you can pay to put yourself like in the audience like they'll uh, you'll be on zoom yeah. watching it somebody put baby yoda <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> they did one of those things where it was like the whole court and then every picture they zoomed in closer and closer <laughs> you just see this like static picture of baby yoda <laughs> like completely like dead face you know emotionless baby yoda face that's awesome yeah <laughs> anyway uh mandalorian end of this month yep you know speaking of westerns yeah for real for real for real yeah all right so unless there's anything we're dying to say that we haven't said already i think that wraps up our main discussion on the mask of the red death yes i think so i think i got all my things out there all your things, all your notes. Yeah. Anything we've missed? I don't think so. And once going twice, sold. All right. Well, this is going to bring us to the end of episode 79, our return. It's been so nice to do this again. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, we still have some listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we have some new ones. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a perfect place, perfect place and time to jump on in. And um, hopefully some new people that might want to support the show. Miss mm -hmm. Noel, would you be kind enough to tell people how they can do that? Yes. Yeah, so you can find us on Patreon. Yeah. Uh, we're up on there. We've got a couple different tiers of contributions. And you get a couple different things, depending on how you want to contribute. Um, you can take a look at that. I believe we have some packages. The... Freddy, Freddy. package? <laughs> I can't remember if Freddy is first. It might be Jason, Freddy... Michael. Yes, I think that sounds right. Um, and you get sort of different things, you know, producer credits, you get to pick a topic, ask us questions, that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately, we're not endowed enough for merch or anything like that. Although maybe someday. Um, if you'd like to support us emotionally, <laughs> you can uh, put a review up on iTunes, you can put a review um, on Stitcher, um, any one of our streaming podcast streaming platforms, we also use SoundCloud as kind of our feed. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at splatterchatter six 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 minus all the vowels in the word splatter chatter. We should be easy, pretty easy to find. Uh, regardless, you can find us on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. Um, 
managed by a friend of the podcast, Miss Colleen. Um, we did have an Instagram. I think it might have gotten shut down. <laughs> I have to look into that. Um, but you can view the blog and leave comments and other nice things, Splatter Chatter. Now, wait a minute. This changed. Splatter Chatter. Splatter-chatter.com. Oh, my God. I don't even remember. <laughs> okay. We'll post that out on Twitter and you can find out. Because we're, we're hoping to post some more blog content and that sort of thing. Some non-audio content in between um, our monthly episodes. Um, you can also, you know, find our personal Twitters on our Splatter Chatter Twitter if you want to, you know, support us emotionally to our faces. That's also possible. It is. And everyone needs emotional support these days. Yes. And luckily the horror community tends to be really good and looking out for each other and being positive and being supportive. Yes. So by all means, reach out to us. We're here for you guys as well. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of next month, of course, remembering that, um, we're going to be doing a monthly drop of episodes right now in November. We have got another Friday, the 13th, the second one of 2020, which means it's time for another Friday, the 13th special. And so in our next episode, we will be covering Friday, the 13th, part seven, the new blood. Yes. It's going to be a fun time. Yeah. And I think we're going to have a lot to say. I think Mm. we're going to have a lot to laugh at. And I think we're going to have to stretch it a little bit to find a (laughs) career, but we'll make it. We're going to have to do a lot of, like, bullshit, like, 10th grade (laughs) English uh, analysis. Yeah, we're going to have to, like, adjust the margins and... (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll be fun. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I, li- I I like the new blood. It's it's not it's not the worst Friday the Thirteenth by any means. No. So, but until then, um, we want to wish everyone a very safe and happy Halloween. Yes. Um. Thank you for listening. We're wear glad. Your masks. Wear your masks. Um, Vote. Vote. Don't go to large gatherings. Um. Stay strong, mm-hmm. and of course, keep up the creep. Yeah. And for now, we're going to say au revoir, adios, hasta luego.